leaders to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching through Daniel chapter 12, and the sermon title is The Great Tribulation. We hope you are blessed by the message today. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 12. We are wrapping up. It's hard to believe we are wrapping up our whole series in Daniel today. So I'll be reading the entirety of chapter 12. So be prepared. If you have phones, I expect to hear clicking, but I would love to hear pages rustled. But I think we might be there. So this is Daniel chapter 12. Here's the word of the Lord. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on the bank of the stream, one on the bank um, of the stream, and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward the heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from that time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the at thirteen hundred and thirty five days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Before I pray, I want to make sure I'm gonna do a sound check because we want to keep these fans on, right? Yes. So can everybody hear me that's even in the back? Thumbs up from people that are awesome. Thank you, Colin. But you have an advantage. Your head is higher than everybody else's. So. Okay, that's really important. We want to keep the fans on. Praise God for that air conditioner that's keeping it just a little bit cooler. So that's just a blessing from the Lord. All right, let's pray together. Thank you, God, for this word that is from you to your people. And we are just grateful to come to an end of a book that we have studied now uh, for many weeks, and Lord, we look forward to many more weeks together, just looking at your word, studying, growing in Christ together. But I pray that this last sermon of this series, God, would be 
would just be exactly what you want, Lord, for your people to hear today. Encourage us, God, with the truth of Scripture. Lord, there's many uh, things that could certainly be confusing uh, in this text, and we don't want to leave here confused. We want to leave here enriched and strengthened by the Word of God. So let that happen today. Speak to your people. Let us listen and have ears that are willing to hear you and say, yes, Lord, whatever you want, your will be done. So we give you this time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God is faithful to bless and to build his church. And it's not through craftiness or cunning of man's words, but through the preaching and the, the faithful preaching of and obedience to the, the Word of God, to God's truth. And that's, I think, evidenced in the 23 weeks of going through a book like Daniel. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but the church has grown through Daniel. That doesn't just happen because Daniel's such a, like a attractive book, right? You know, it's, it's difficult. There's hard things to, to go through. And I just praise God for what He's been doing. And, and I, I hope you guys are encouraged and have been strengthened as you've been studying yourself um, going through Daniel. In case you didn't know, we've been 23 weeks in this book. That's pretty cool. I don't know if that's uh, normal or what. I don't know. I haven't checked. But 23 weeks in the book of Daniel for, for 12 chapters. Uh, we've covered some incredible topics and truths, some of them very deep, some of them wide, some fairly confusing and even controversial. And, and yet, God has been so, so faithful through it all. Praise His name. Amen, church? Praise His name. So thank you guys for being a church that loves the Word of God, because that's what it's about, right? You, you're not here because, because the preaching is cool. You're here because we love God's Word, and we need God's Word. So let's just keep that up. So if we, we're going we're gonna to dive into this text, all right? We had it read. It's a beautiful text, and, and again, like most of what we've been reading through Daniel, it takes a little bit of digging and slowing down and pausing, hovering over some texts, so we're going to do that. But let's just dive right in. If we were to continue the, the flow and follow the context of Daniel 11, so those of you who were with us last week, you'll, you'll remember Daniel 11 was a, a lengthy chapter and, and a fairly difficult sermon to not only preach but even to hear because it takes work. And you guys did an amazing job. Isaac did a wonderful job. God used him greatly. I heard great testimony after that sermon. But the context of Daniel 11 where we left off and then we come into chapter 12, what we have in the back of our minds is the Grecian Empire and the horrific rule of Antiochus Epiphanes fresh on our minds. That's how chapter 11 carried us through. If you guys were here, you remember that. If you weren't here, that's mostly of what chapter 11 accounts for us, is this great prophecy of specific accounts coming from the Grecian Empire of Antiochus Epiphanes, which you can read and find in detail on your own time. Daniel 11.45 tells us, if you want to glance back, 11.45 tells us of Antiochus Epiphanes' death. At least that's where I would say it's referring to. It says, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. That's speaking specifically of that world ru ruler, Antiochus. And even with his death at the end of chapter 11, what is important for us to know is that the final vision that is being spoken through the angel to Daniel doesn't come to a close until the fifth verse of chapter 12. There's a, it's a, one of those unfortunate chapter breaks that we have in our modern Bibles, and so we have to just kind of deal with that. But the, the 
prophecy, that specific vision doesn't come an end until to the fifth verse. So we follow the flow of these major prophecies that have come up in Daniel since the beginning of the book that we've been studying. And that, that flow is this, and you can just hear me, this is still just introduction. But we have the empire of Babylon, that's where it began with Daniel himself. And then we move to the Medo-Persian empire, then the Greece, the Grecian empire, which is consistent with Daniel 2, Daniel 7 and 8, and then what we just saw with Daniel chapter 11, this final empire before the one through which Jesus enters the world, or into which Jesus enters, which would be the Roman Empire. So, that's all consistent with the rest of the book. And when we consider that flow as we look at the verse 1 of chapter 12, look at what it says. It says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Now, I don't believe that it would be natural for us to follow the flow of all of these prophecies that have very neatly gone from Rome to Medo-Persia to Greece, and then the final culmination, the time, the coming of the Messiah, it wouldn't make sense for us to right here go, this is an event in our future, right? Just follow the flow of what we're talking about, what we're talking about. It says it would, it would be a time of great trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. So it wouldn't be natural to, for us to suddenly go, this is in our future, but rather something that takes place around the time of what? That next empire in line after the Grecian Empire. This is what the flow has been in the context of Daniel. Those of you who are struggling potentially with what I'm saying or has been said because you've only thought that this is, must be primarily future events, think of one thing. And we've been saying this all through the study. Context. Context. Don't argue with Scripture. Don't even argue with me or any other preacher. It's not about that. Look at the Scripture. We're gonna, I'm doing the best I can to go to the text. And the context, I believe, screams something out to us. So... I believe that that's what this is speaking of. It's coming into that final phase, that next empire, which is what? Rome. I see some mouths moving. I can't hear you. The fans are loud up here too. Um, so Rome. Or at least, at least, and there are some variations on this, at least a continuation of the trouble that the Jews were to face under Antiochus Epiphanes. There are some that would say, well, this is actually speaking still of Antiochus and the great trouble that he would bring. So... Daniel 11 was primarily featuring Antiochus Epiphanes, and, and he would bring desolation and set up an abomination in the temple of the Jews. We know that that did happen in his time. And he would kill thousands upon thousands of Jewish people simply because, why? He hated them, and he was thirsty for their blood, quite literally. Verse 36 of chapter 11, notice what it says in verse 36 of chapter 11, so just glance back again, it says of Antiochus, he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. Now, what is this a reminder for us as we come into chapter 12? Once again, that this is all working according to God's timeline. God is allowing this. God is saying this shall happen. This will all take place. And this ruler, this wicked ruler, will prosper until the indignation is accomplished. So God is accomplishing something through these wicked rulers and these dictatorships, and it is something that we must remember at all times is that God is working things out according to His timeline. It's extremely comforting at all times to know that God is doing that. But then Michael, 
We see this name, Michael, again. He's considered the guardian angel of Israel. Many have said that. He has given specific charge. There are some that take that this view, even though it says Michael, they'll say, no, this can't be Michael. Michael doesn't have that kind of power. This must be Jesus. All right, but it does say Michael. But there are some views that say that even though it says Michael, it could be Jesus. Am I confusing you? Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> one or the other is a powerful being that obviously has representation over the people of God specifically. He says he will rise up and there shall be a time of trouble potentially a distinct trouble from the time of Antiochus, which I believe that's what it's talking about, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. So the question we're going to address first is, what is the time of trouble that he's speaking to you? Aren't you interested in that? What is that time of trouble? So when people read Daniel 12, I think that's probably the, the primary reason why. We're like, well, what is that time of trouble? Is it then? Is it now? Is it later? What are we talking about? The most popular view, we'll start with that one which, by the way, is not always the correct view. We'll just start with that. And, and you, you understand that, right? There's all kinds of scenarios where just because it's the most popular view does not mean it's the correct view. So we have to be diligent to study and look at context. But the most popular view is that this, in Daniel 12, is referring to a time of tribulation for the Jewish people that is still in our future. Particularly that this is none other than a second half of a seven-year tribulation period known as the Great Tribulation just before the physical return of Jesus Christ and immediately after a secret rapture of the church. That's the most popular view by far. That would be in that camp that we've covered many times, the premillennial dispensational view, okay? This is a text, though, that is often spoken synonymously with other prophecies. You've probably heard these phrases, the time of Jacob's trouble. Everybody in that popular viewpoint, or most people even, that, that speak of the tribulation say that it's a synonymous phrase with what Jeremiah in chapter 30, Jeremiah 30 says, the time of Jacob's trouble. That's the great tribulation. And then also another text that's brought in almost to look at parallel would be Jeremiah 30 and Matthew 24. Because Jesus himself speaks of a time of great tribulation, actually uses that phrase. Now, I struggle with this. I do. I've, been in, I've shared with uh, the other, my, my pastors in this church and then also the, the, the brothers that are in Topsom. We've been sharing and fellowshipping. And I've been, you know, one way for us to come together is just to share frustrations, right? So <laughs> I, uh, I said, I'm, I'm tired of these commentaries. They don't agree on anything. Like, you read Daniel 12, and you go to the 15 different commentaries, and you're like, they don't agree. So you can see how that could be frustrating, right? Some agree, obviously. You can find some. But that's, that's what we're working with. There's a lot of viewpoints here. But my conviction is, and I think that it's proper for each of you to have a conviction through your entire life as to how you're going to interpret the Bible. Because otherwise, you're going to have people that say, no, this is what you need to believe, and this is what you need to believe. But if you're convinced that the Bible is to be interpreted, now, there's different, obviously, views on that. But hear me out on this. I'm convinced, and, I'm, and there's a conviction that interpreting Scripture must be done contextually, always asking this question, what was the original author's intent, not what do I want this to mean? What was the, and you will find that you will go so far and have so much clarity in your trying to figure out what the Bible is saying by saying that question, what was the original author's intent 
inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what we could say is what was the Holy Spirit's intent through the author, not what do I want this to say based on all these other voices. I think that would be helpful. And so that's been my conviction going through this. So what was the original author's intent? And so since much of interpreting Daniel 12's prophecy is done in light of Matthew 24, which we're going to reference, I thought, let's take a look at Matthew 24 again. So turn over to Matthew 24 and take a look at this with me. Because in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 2, Jesus specifically predicts the destruction of the Jewish temple. And that is not something that can be argued with. It is so clear in the context of what Jesus says. Matthew 24, verse 2, you see all these, do you not? Jesus comes outside the temple, his disciples are with him, and he points them back at the temple. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What's he talking about? The destruction of the temple. There's no ulterior alternative interpretation to that text. In verse 3, the disciples, so keep glancing at Matthew 24, verse 3, the disciples ask him when these things will take place and what are the signs that will accompany the end of the age. Now, when you and I hear phrases like end of the age, without a doubt, we think end of the world, right? How many of you, when you think end of the age in this text, you thought end of our world as we know it? I just, be honest. Okay, cool. And that's clearly a view that is held. But I just want to show you what is being said here, and this is where I'm convinced to camp for now. (laughs) So there's been many ends of ages that have come and gone since the world began. We know that is true. Ages that have come and gone. So I don't believe you need to pigeonhole yourself to that. Also, look at this. Matthew, in Matthew 24, verse 3, it says that his disciples came to him privately Okay, so we know who Jesus is speaking to here. And then look, glance down at verse 9. It says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. So who is he speaking to here? Who is he speaking to? Who? In this context, we can say he's got his disciples privately with him in a private meeting. And he's saying, hey, they're saying, what's going to be the end of the age? What's the sign of the coming? And he says these things to his disciples. The context is about the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. They shall deliver you up to death. He's speaking to his disciples. Verse 15, so when you see, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. He clearly wants there to be some understanding from those who read this text, right? Those who read this. Now, I did a little bit of searching to say, when was Matthew circulating? Was Matthew circulating before the destruction of the Jewish temple? Absolutely. By the 40s AD, this gospel was circulating so that the people of God could read this and could what? They could understand. And then it says in verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, I know this is kind of repeat for some. Back in the early part of Daniel, this was mentioned as well. But Jesus references many local contexts. He mentions the city. He mentions Judea. He mentions mountains of Judea. So who is it that is expected to see the abomination and then have the opportunity to flee? I believe it's the disciples and the people of that day, and those who would hear or read the warnings as they passed them along and as these letters, as this word began to be circulated. And then there are many in other places, Matthew 24, that speak of local parameters 
which have also been mentioned. And I would encourage you to just kind of skim through that at some point and, and read it for yourself. The point being, if Matthew 24's tribulation is speaking of Christ's coming to judge national Israel, the city of Jerusalem and the temple, but that is also the very common parallel text that is used to interpret what Daniel 12 and Jeremiah 30 is talking about, then why would we say that Daniel 12 and Jeremiah 30 is talking about a future event from us? This is just my reasoning, guys. I'm not trying to be dogmatic here. I'm just trying to look at the Scripture. Why would we say that? Yet it's clear that Jesus is speaking to people in His context, saying, you will see the destruction of the temple. You will see the abomination standing in the holy place. You should flee to the mountains. And all these very specific warnings to get out of town when you see destruction coming. And so because, classically, that primary popular view that does clump these verses together, I think that just creates a very big issue uh, in, in my understanding. So in case you're curious, though, I do believe that Matthew 24, beginning, beginning in verse 36 to the end of the chapter, does likely speak of Christ's final return and the end of the world. Because at that point, Jesus makes a break and begins to explain something very different about what is coming. He answers both of their questions. So, even that day, he says, not even the angels nor the, even the Son himself knows the day or the hour. So it's at that point that Jesus begins to make a differentiation between what's happening in the current context and his future coming. But for the rest, Jesus was precisely predicting a day for that generation. Look at verse 21 of chapter 24. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. What does that sound like? Sounds exactly what we read in Daniel chapter 12. It's like Jesus took the words right out of the book of Daniel and said this phrase, tribulation such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. That's lined up with Daniel 1, or excuse me, 12, 1, and Matthew 24, 11. They're almost identical. So flip back over to Daniel 12, and we'll keep talking through that. Daniel said it would be a tribulation like never before. That sounds pretty bad. Jesus added some words. If you notice that, Jesus says it'll be like never before, but Jesus added the words and never will be. That's really interesting. Would Jesus have referenced a time so horrible that nothing past, present, or future would compare to it if it were a final tribulation on earth and there was nothing that would come after it? That's a very simple, logical question that to me, I'm thinking, I don't know if that makes sense for it to be our future or the final tribulation. Jesus said there won't be anything like it afterwards. And Jesus, I don't think, ever wastes words, and he would have been comparing it to literally nothing if it were referring to the final tribulation. Does that make sense? A final tribulation by nature has nothing after it to compare to. All right, moving on. Daniel 12.1 mentions deliverance for God's people. So let's notice who this is for. This is incredible stuff, guys. It says, let's read verse 1 and then down into verse 2 and 3. We'll go a little bit further. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of great trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So he begins to speak about hope. He begins to talk about deliverance for the people of God, which is an incredible thing. And again, the context, Daniel, was this letter would be read, this, this account would be read by the people of God coming up to the point of the Messiah. 
And the, even the tribulation of Antiochus Epiphanes and all these great things that would happen, this would have brought comfort. There's deliverance coming for God's people. But who is it for? This text tells us something really incredible. It says that for those whose names are found written in the book. You see that? That's who deliverance would be for. Now, there are a few things that hearing the words book of life should cause us to think about as Christians. Based on this text, and there's actually eight times in the New Testament where the word book of life or the words book of life comes into play. So it's certainly something that can be studied and recognized. But there's two things that I want to mention that should come to our mind as Christians. One, God's precise and intentional involvement in His plan to save sinners. That's something that we can all think about. The fact that there's a book which is undeniable. We've read it in Daniel, and there's, again, there's eight places in the context of the New Testament that you can go to read that there's clearly a book with names in it. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And it's God's book. Nobody else has access to it. He's the one that has the pen. Nobody else. Okay? That's pretty cool. But it also shows us his intention, his intentional and loving and precise involvement with his plan to save sinners. Number two, it should cause us to see at least that there is a predestining grace of God over his bride, the church. That's what we are to see, or two things at least that we should see when we think of the book of life. And we can compare that with Ephesians chapter 1. You can go to Scripture. You don't have to hear anybody else's argument. You could stay in the Bible and just say, God, how awesome you are that you have a book. How awesome you are that you've written names in a book. Praise God, right? So here's what a study of the book of life is not for, okay? Never take your understanding of the book of life, whatever that is or whatever view you hold, and use it as a witnessing tool. Never. It's so messed up. You would not go to tell someone to believe in the Lord so that they can be written there in the book. First of all, that's a complete abuse of what Scripture teaches about the book. Believing in Jesus doesn't get your name written there. That's nowhere in Scripture can that be found. But in fact, we're told that it is an eternal book. It's a book that God has the pen for, and he writes names, has written names in the book that only he knows. And it's not a tool to say to somebody, hey, you want to be in the book? Then you better believe in Jesus. It's not what the Bible teaches, right? So don't, let it, don't, don't go that way. Don't use it as a tactic to scare people. It is a wonderful grace of God that has to do with our salvation. It is an amazing thing. The angel in this context, is telling Daniel that deliverance will come for the people of God out of the midst of this great time of trouble. And because God is sovereign and has written names in his book, we can be confident that many will be delivered. Amen? Because he has written names in the book, because he is sovereign, we can know, and these people who will read this can know God is going to do this because he's written names in the book. Move on. Let's look at verse 2 and 3. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now this is, I believe, describing what that deliverance looks like. He just said, your people will be delivered, as many whose names are written in the book. And then he goes right into this, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth. So I believe they're connected. It's a descriptive uh, 
word about the deliverance that's all within this final vision and prophecy for God's people. This is the deliverance that's mentioned earlier. I do not believe, bear with me people, don't leave. (laughs) I do not believe this is speaking of the rapture, nor do I believe this is looking at the final resurrection or the eternal state, although that is a popular view. That right here, because we do see words about resurrection, right? Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. So it sounds like that general election or erection. Wow. Wow. Please just cross that one out. Resurrection. Last time I said that, I fell off a chair. Do you guys remember that? Anyway. A general resurrection in which the living and the dead are both raised, one to judgment and one to eternal life. But I don't believe that's what this is speaking of. This is a resurrection that does take place, but it's not the one at the very end of human history, but one that is, I believe, spiritual in nature. Now, before you say there's no, there's no possible way it could be talking about that, look at, look if, I'll just put this on the screen, 1 Timothy 4.1. It says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. So we know that there is a resurrection at the end of time. But if we look at Ephesians 2 verse 5, we'll put that on the screen too. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. So is Ephesians 2 speaking of resurrection? You can answer yes or no. Is it speaking of resurrection? Look at it. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. It is speaking of resurrection, but clearly not at the end of time, but a resurrection of those who believe in Christ. So notice what's happening in Daniel 12. The missional imperative that is given in Daniel 12 in conjunction with the time of trouble that is speaking of, being spoken of, I believe tells us that this is not talking about a future resurrection of the living and the dead, but a spiritual resurrection from the preaching of the gospel. Bear with me on this one. One, he says, deliverance will come for those of Israel who are the true church, those whose names are written in the book. He brings up this idea of those who are in the book. That's a New Testament concept. We preach We preach the gospel with confidence, knowing that God has a people for himself. Secondly, during this time of deliverance, it says many will come awake unto everlasting life and others to everlasting contempt. So there's there's no more need of this referring to a bodily resurrection than Ezekiel's vision of dry bones. How many of you have read the vision of dry bones and you thought, well, that must be speaking of actual resurrection. No, no, he's talking about Israel being disbanded and, and dead and coming back to life to serve God, right? But it's very apparent and imagery given of dead bones then suddenly having sinew and muscle and coming to life. Then when we look at Ephesians 2, like I said, there were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead before coming to Christ. This time in history that's being spoken of here was a time in which hearts were darkened. The Jews had rejected and crucified the promised Messiah, and then the gospel of the kingdom begins to be preached around this time. First century, Jesus comes in, the Roman Empire is in charge, Antiochus Epiphanes is on the scene. Think about the turmoil 
the utter darkness for God's people, the deadness of hearts, the disbelief in the Messiah, the waiting, the waiting. But then the gospel comes on the scene, the kingdom begins to be preached, and people heard and many believed. So look at verse 3, those who were wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many hearts to righteousness. Daniel speaks of a time of witnessing. Daniel speaks of a time in which people are going to be turning hearts to righteousness, preaching the gospel, sharing the message of the kingdom, and those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Daniel is being told that not only will the Jews be delivered from that trouble, those whose names are written in the book, but there will be a spiritual awakening for the people of God and a people who take up the mantle of the gospel to proclaim it and lead others to righteousness Now, when I look at history and you look at when that begins to happen in great manifold ways, that is the time of the first century when the church is born, filled with the Spirit, they begin to preach and proclaim the gospel like never before, and the entire world is changed upside down. Who's changed first? The Jews. It's for the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we see this in the coming of Christ. We see this in the birth of the church, the commissioning of the apostles, the gospel brought to the Gentiles in the book of Acts. You know, the many, many, many souls who wake up unto everlasting life during that time. New City, do you not long to see that kind of awakening again? I just want to bring it back to this, our context, for a moment. Think about this. Think about the deadness of souls. Think about those who need to be brought to life eternal in Jesus. Do we not long to see an awakening like that? That in our community, your neighbors, this town, our state, that we would see people rising from the dead to everlasting life. Like it says in Ephesians 2 verse 5, those who were dead in their sins will be made alive together with Christ Jesus. I pray that it is so that we would be wise, like Daniel tells us, and shine like the stars, leading many more to believe on Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Daniel tells us that there was a day that was coming where this would be the wise thing to do. Those who are wise would believe these things and preach the gospel and lead others to righteousness in Jesus. So having come to the end of the final vision, Daniel is now told to seal it up till the time of the end. Look at what it says. Read verse 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, verse 4, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So he's told to seal it up till the time of the end. Again, I don't believe this is speaking of the end of the world, but the time of the end when these prophecies will culminate, because that was the context of all of this, is Daniel, these things are going to accomplish something in these specific prophecies that are given. Now look at this. It says, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Most people, including me at one time, believed that this was talking about air travel and, com- and computers and artificial intelligence. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands. I am really certainly not trying to cause anybody to feel awkward here. But I do not believe that when it says this is knowledge will increase and people will go to and fro, that this is a prophecy of air travel. All right? I did think that, and I was taught that, that this must be increased communication. It must be the ability for the wild, World Wide Web to cause knowledge to increase. But again, 
context. Context, context, context. This phrase indicates a desire for knowledge running to and fro. There's other places in Scripture where this phrase is used, where the Lord searches to and fro for those who will worship Him, right? Those who will be after His heart. This is not talking about travel, but it's talking about a search for a belief, a heart, a heart understanding, a knowledge. There will be those who run to and fro looking for understanding, but will not be able to understand. They will be looking to connect the pieces of this prophecy, but they cannot because the time was not yet. They would be unable to because the time was not right, but then knowledge shall increase. And that interpretation fits exactly with what Daniel is being told. Shut up this because it's not time yet. The time will come where it'll make sense. The time will come when these events start to take place, or all of this in Daniel 11 that seems crazy and specific, you're going to be able to look at that and go, wow, it's happening. Wow. This is God. This is God's specific and precise prophecy of what will come upon God's people and the prediction of the Messiah. These predictions about the Messiah were many years in Daniel's, from Daniel's day, and until the events began to take place, it it could not make sense. Does that make sense? Or are you searching to and fro? (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Dad jokes. Now listen to this. This is interesting, right? Because the other place that people we go to, right, Daniel and Revelation generally are seen as having a lot in common. And that's true. There's a lot in common. But look at Revelation 22.10. At the end of the revelation of John, he he says all these things. Now look at what he's told for him to do. He said to me, an angel said to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is what? Near. Isn't that interesting? So for revelation, he says, don't seal this up for the time is near. But for Daniel, he says, seal this up because the time is still far in your future. I'm just going to leave that there for you guys to think about because it's much, it's, it's so prominent for us to think of Daniel in our future and also Revelation, all of Revelation in our future. Could it be that based on what we're talking about here, that this is speaking of local events and events that would happen in the time of Jesus and the Messiah? I don't know, but this is pretty interesting. Revelation says many times that what's prophesied there is soon and will happen near and is right around the corner from John's day. That's what the prophecy says. And then he says, don't seal up the book Daniel is told, seal up the book. Seems that where Daniel's words were meant to be in his future and would only be understood closer to the first coming of Christ, John's visions were in his near future, potentially soon to take place, and the people receiving his words would have understanding. So don't seal up the book. It's interesting. Then in verse 5 to 7, we see another figure speaking. Look back at Daniel Daniel chapter 12, verses 5 to 7. It says, then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on, his, on this bank and the stream and the one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the, of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things shall be finished. So that's the answer that he was given. When in doubt, ask the man in linen, right? He's like, okay, here's that guy again. Let's talk to this guy. 
How long would it be? And the answer in verse 7, it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And then he mentions the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end and all these things will be finished. And then verse 8 is really personally, look at verse 8 with me. Verse 8, I heard, but I did not understand. And then I said, oh my Lord, (laughs) what shall be the outcome of these things? That's really my go-to now for Bible prophecy interpretation is, oh, I heard, but I did not understand. (laughs) And Daniel felt that way too. So if we're like, I'm I'm hearing this, but I'm not understanding, we're even like in the same company as Daniel here. So it's pretty comforting. But what does seem clear is that God is the one who brings an end to the trouble of his people. I think that's what's really clear here. There's a lot of unclear things, but that's very clear. So whether this time, times, and half a times is referring to a three and a half year period or simply a time that is cut short for the sake of the elect, like Matthew 24 says, and what it seems to potentially refer to in Daniel 7, what we know is for sure is that God is the one who's writing the entire story. God is the one that's doing this. Daniel asks, what shall be the outcome of these things? And to this, he's given the answer, go your way, Daniel. Not fun, right? That's probably not what he wanted to hear. What's going to be the outcome? Go, Daniel. <laughs> there's, a, there's some practical, I think, application to that. There's some things that we can hear in that. He says, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. In other words, when the time is right, knowledge will increase and this will all make sense. But for now, don't worry about the times and the seasons. Have we ever heard that before? Disciples, go your way. Hey, Jesus, when will these things be? Is now the time? Don't worry about the times and the seasons. Go, preach the gospel. Make disciples. Make disciples of every nation. Bring my word to people who need to hear my word. They need to hear the truth. So Daniel is being told something pretty remarkable. Go your way. These things are sealed up. Daniel, get on with your life now. No more prophecies coming to you after this. No more visions. That's it. Daniel would die years later, and this is the last that he would hear. And this book, how crazy, right? How awesome that this is preserved of all that God did and how he used him in Babylon. Incredible things. And there's many that need to hear this today too, I believe. Just serve the Lord with all your heart. Don't worry about the times and the seasons. Just serve the Lord with all that you have. Go your way, dear Christian, and do not worry. I won't ask for a show of hands either, but I would be sure that there are many in this room that at times, from time to time, you worry about the times and the seasons. You worry about what's going to take place. You worry about what's going to happen to America What's going to happen in our government? What's going to happen to our families? We worry about times and seasons, do we not? But the clear word from the Scripture is that God does know what's going on. He is in control. He's sovereign. It's His timeline. He clearly knew when this was all going to happen for Daniel. And He gives him this word, go your way. But then He gives this partial answer, perhaps. This was like His way of saying, go your way. But as He's like walking away, He gives him a little nugget of truth, which is incredible because we get to hear it too. This partial answer is given to him. This is understood to, um, whether this is understood to be during the time of Antiochus or under Nero in the first century or in general, maybe this is what it's going to just be like to live for Christ in this kind of world. But look at verse 10. Many shall purify themselves 
and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. So he says, go your way, Daniel. Seal up the prophecy until the time of the end. But this is what it's going to look like. Some will be pure. Some will be wicked. Some will understand, but the wicked will act wickedly and be foolish. And that's what we see, is it not? This, now, when we read to the end of the chapter, I'm sure one of the things you're hoping I will answer in great detail, which I'm not. This is the 1,290 days and the 1,335 days. There's so much debate on what that actually is. I'm so sorry, but I, I don't have the ability to clear that up for you, okay? It's really confusing. And most scholars are also confused. I'm not a scholar, so I'm really confused, right? Um, but there's, a, there's at least an understanding that this must be referring to that time period. It just so happens, right, that this amount of days is about three and a half years, right? So again, the time times half a time, what's going on here? So whether this is uh, referring to Antiochus, we don't know. But the point being, once again, God controls the times and the seasons of it all. So he's saying, endure to the end, trusting him. So when he says, those who endure to the 1,335 days, which is beyond the 1290, there's a, potentially he's just saying, look, press on, persevere, make it to the end. Trust in the Lord, trust in him through all of those things. But this is where we need to turn to the gospel in order to understand what this is saying. Because when he says there will be many who are made pure, many who are washed white, notice it again, many will purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand. Who is it that's actually pure in this world? If you're like, well, oh, so we need to be pure? We need to uh, purify ourselves? Oh, that's me. You know, that's, no, no, nobody. That's not us. That's a work of the gospel. That's a work of Christ. Daniel is very, very much so pointing us to the righteousness that is in Christ and to a work that happens to those who trust in Christ, even under intense persecution like Antiochus or Nero or anything that happens in our day or in our future. So either way, this can be preparation for us and something for us to hold onto. Who among each of us can say that apart from the grace of Christ, we ourselves are not also wicked or act wickedly? Apart from the grace of Jesus, we are all in that camp of unwise and acting wickedly, being wicked in our hearts and to our core. We need Christ. We need the gospel. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. This is speaking of that great wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God, the wisdom that God imparts to those who are His. This is the gospel. And what is it that is needed to be understood in all of this? In all of Daniel's words, from chapter 1 to chapter 12, all that we've studied... It's that Jesus is our light in a dark world of tyrannical leaders. That's one thing that is, needs to be understood. That Jesus Christ is the light and he is wisdom. He is understanding and he is our light in dark and a tyrannical world. Jesus is the greater Daniel. 
Jesus is the greater Daniel who kept himself from all temptations of the world. If you remember back in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel did not take of the king's delicacies, but he kept himself from those things. And Jesus, in a greater way, kept himself from all temptation of the world, not eating of those delicacies, but purposing in his heart to do all of the Father's will. That's Jesus. Jesus is who we look to from reading Daniel. Jesus is also the crusher of Satan's head. So when we read about tyrannical rulers and Nero's and Antiochus Epiphanes or a potential future Antichrist or Satan himself, Christ Jesus is the promised Messiah to crush the head of the serpent. Praise God. Amen for that. Because we need that. Of all of this stuff that probably just confused you to no end because it's confusing to me. It's a lot of stuff, but what do we need to get? Jesus fulfills all of this. He is who we need. He crushes the head of Satan. He is the stone sent from heaven from earlier in Daniel to destroy those empires. And what does he also destroy in the coming of Christ? He destroys the wisdom of the world with what? The foolishness of the preached gospel. So Paul tells us, through the foolishness of preaching the gospel, we tear down strongholds. We make those who call themselves wise actually very, very foolish because the foolishness of the gospel preached is the power of God to salvation for those who believe the gospel. It is the wisdom from heaven. It is God's wisdom. It is ultimately what we need. Jesus is the worthy one who imputes his righteousness to those who trust in him. So this last and final chapter, speaking of righteousness, speaking of purification, speaking of those who will be raised risen to newness of life. It is Jesus who imputes that righteousness to those who trust in him and even purifies us through the most troubling of times. He purifies us in troubled times and he blesses those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It is knowing Jesus that is the most wise thing that we could do in this world. So when Daniel speaks about a time where wisdom those who are wise will act wisely and those who are wicked will act wickedly, I think we could say that is our time. That's a continuation of what has been since Christ stepped into this world and began to preach the kingdom and people began to reject it. But those who are wise will receive it. It is only those who truly know and truly live for Christ who have full assurance of their inheritance in heaven. Look at the last verse with me. We've kind of skimmed over that 1,335 days He says that from the time of the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But, listen to this, but go your way. Again, he's speaking to Daniel. Go your way and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Guys, this is incredible. What he's telling Daniel is you have a future. You have a future in the righteousness that is given by God. You have an allotted place. Daniel, you don't have anything to worry about because your righteousness is in Christ. Even before Christ came, he trusted in the coming of the Messiah. The opening chapter, I don't know if you remember, but Daniel was opened up by this deportation of Daniel and the Jews from their homeland to go into exile. And that's us. That's also us. We are in exile. We are a temporary people in a land that is not our own. This is not our 
our birthplace. This is, or this is not our final place. We are stuck in this place between birth and our final reward, which is the glory of heaven. But then this verse gives us hope because just like Daniel, living in exile as strangers in the land, those who rest in Christ have an allotted place in glory. So you can be somebody in exile, somebody in pain, somebody in temporary persecution. You can be somebody who feels like, well, where are we going? What's going to happen here? How much longer, oh Lord? And with that, have an allotted place for you in heaven with Christ. Because what does Ephesians even tell us later on? You are raised to be with Christ, seated where he is seated, in heavenly places. You have an inheritance and an eternal reward that is yours now, and we have nothing to fear. Seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And what's, what's our mission and what's our hope, church? Well, we know our hope is Jesus Christ. We know our hope is the gospel. But we also have a mission, so I want to close with this missional word. Be wise and be a soul winner. Be wise and be a soul winner. Shine like the brightness of the sky above and seek to turn many hearts to Jesus, not excluding your very own heart. Seek to turn many hearts to Jesus. There's so much in this text. I I, I obviously would invite conversation if there's any questions, but let's just take that that Christ is the hope, Christ is the light, Christ is the crusher of Satan's head, and he is the one who's given us the mission here to be soul winners, to be wise, to shine like the brightness of the stars, and to turn many hearts to Jesus, not excluding our own that needs to be turned to heart to, to Christ right now. And so let's pray. As we transition to communion, let's just ask the Lord God, turn our hearts and make us into soul winners, missionaries, who in this time where we know we need resurrection all over our world, all over our land, that we would bring the gospel to people who need it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good and gracious king. You are sovereign over all. We thank you that Daniel has taught us that you are in control, that there's not a king that rises to power that doesn't do so by your permission, and not only that, by your sovereign, purposeful hand. Lord, you allowed Daniel in exile so that he could be a light there. And you've allowed us in our places of trouble and hardship so that we can be lights to this world and shine like the the sky above. Help us to turn many hearts to the righteousness that is in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. God, let us not be apathetic about that call and that mission. I thank you, God, that you've given this church a love for evangelism and a love for the gospel and a love to see more hearts turned to Jesus. May it be the case, God, may we turn our eyes to you even today. People who are feeling hopeless or burnt out or unsure of the mission or unsure of what to do with all of the turmoil and the chaos, but that we would go our way, that we would go not fretting about the times and the seasons, but take the commission that you gave your disciples very seriously. God, thank you that there is hope in Jesus. Thank you that you have raised us from death to eternal life through faith in your Son. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, God, for the goodness that you've shown each of us. Lord, and I pray, my prayer also, and all of us here, Lord, we pray for those who are not yet repentant of sin, to turn to follow Christ, to trust in Him as Lord, who are still wallowing in sin,
and in shame and in guilt and contempt. Lord, may they not hear this news about Jesus and live on with contempt and shame because they despised it and rejected it. But Lord, may they be wise and turn to the only true Savior and turn to Christ. Lord, give us wisdom. Thank you, God, for your love for us. Continue to speak to us through your word. Make us a people who love your word and trust it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.